Hey there, welcome to another edition of the Live Wire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank. Uh, this week, we are going to talk about letting go, which is, you know, something uh, that we've all had to do in one way or another over the last seven or eight months. And we're going to be talking to Tommy Pico. Speaking of letting things go, maybe you have been holding on to this notion that poetry is kind of boring. And let me tell you, it is time to release that because Tommy is one of uh, the most dynamic and engaging guests that we have had on the show in in a long, long time. Plus, uh, we are going to talk to Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Eli Saslow, who wrote a book about one man letting go of his white supremacist beliefs. Uh, Then we're going to invite you to let loose as we hear some comedy from the very funny Emily Heller. Plus, we've got music from the Helio sequence. Stick around. Great show in store. And it all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham. And this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape. And we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. We um, are going to be talking about letting go this oh, week excellent. on the show. Yes. Okay. And I, I, I just thought in the spirit of that, I would share one of my favorite mantras with you that just kind of to center ourselves. Hmm, okay. All right. Here we go. I accept that my experiences are part of life's great journey and everything I go through is to help me become the best version of myself. <sighs> How's that? I want to let that go. Really? Yeah. You're not feeling it? Come on. I think a mantra should be much catchier. It should be like, where's the beef? You know, like you need, <laughs> you need like a lot, a better prosody. That was, that was a lot of abstract concepts. But you know what, Elena, the journey you're on right now is that you don't like that mantra, but it's still <laughs> part of the journey. The only journey I want to be on is the don't stop believing journey. Uh, well, we're about to go on the journey of this show, um, and hopefully, anyway, we're all going to feel a little more zen when it's over because we've let go of things that are holding us back. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of which, are you ready to do the show? I am ready. Okay, Molly, are we recording? We are rolling gently along. <laughs> <laughs> Molly has like a one of those zen water features in the background <laughs> at her house in Portland. We're all in a very good place right now. All right, Elena, take it away. <laughs> From PRX, it's Livewire. Recorded from our actual houses, welcome to the Livewire House Party. This week, poet Tommy Pico, journalist Eli Saslow, comedian Emily Heller, 
and music from the Helio sequence. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much, <laughs> Elena Passarello. Thanks, everybody. For tuning in. Uh, we've got a fun show in store this week. Of course, we always like to kick things off with a question that we have posed to the Livewire audience. Uh, people answer that question through social media. Collect those up. This week, uh, the question that we have asked the audience is, tell us something that you need to get rid of. Mm. Like, emotionally, physically, we're all holding on to a lot of stuff these days, Elena. And... Uh, I think just kind of releasing some of that stuff is good for all of us. Mm -hmm. So uh, what is something that you need to get rid of, do you think? I would like to get rid of all of the world's supply of leaf blowers. Is this something personal to you? That seems like a very specific thing. Yeah, I bought a house five years ago in the suburbs. I never lived in the suburbs. I was like, now it's going to be quiet, finally. And it is the loudest place I've ever lived because every single one of my neighbors picks a different hour of the day to either personally or hire people to run what sounds like a horde of Mack truck wasps around my house while I'm trying to work from home. And I, I, am, I am at the end of my rope, Burbank. I don't think that this is just you being extra, by the way, Elena, because there, I, I read an article years ago about leaf blowers, and there's something about the motor of, of the standard leaf blower that actually the noise that it generates, it operates at some frequency where it actually, it travels further than it should and it cuts through all other noises. So if you think it's sort of like right next door, even yes. though it's three blocks away, that's not just your imagination. That's, that's something about leaf blowers. I'm going to run for office and my only campaign is going to be ban leaf blowers. I think you could win. <laughs> my crusade. <laughs> All right, listen. Uh, what I need to get rid of this week is is more about me uh, and just my own, I guess, I don't know, insecurities. I have to stop trying to get so much approval from social media posts because it really led me astray recently. Okay, what happened? Okay, so I'm actually here in Portland right now because I'm doing a TV story. Okay. And the TV story is about... Uh, drive-through haunted houses oh. because it's a pandemic. And so they figured out ways so you can still go and, and get scared, but safely in your car. And so I went through one of these and they filmed it for the TV story. And uh, they threw all this fake blood on this minivan that I had rented. What? And when you get done, they wash it off with a power washer. But I asked them not to because I thought it would be funny <laughs> to drive the rental minivan back to the rental car place <laughs> and drop it, it off. <laughs> and I wanted to take a picture of this rental car that looks like a crime scene next to all of the other normal rental car returns. And then I wanted to tweet it because I thought people would get a kick out of it. What I didn't really consider was, one, I was still going to have the rental car for an entire day oh, no. after the shoot. <laughs> and two, I pulled the rental car back up to the hotel I'm staying in. And the two fellas who parked the cars at the hotel stayed inside the lobby. <laughs> they were sort of looking at each other like, do we call 911 now? Do we let this guy into the hotel and then we call 911? It is scaring the people in Portland. And even, I think, more troublingly for me, I don't think it washes off very easily. Oh, my God. And it all happened, Elena, because I wanted to tweet this one funny picture. Did you tweet it? Yeah, I didn't even get that many likes. No! 
That's why I'm letting it go. That's why I'm letting go my obsession with social media. Hey, what's the audience saying they need to let go of or get rid of this week? Here's one from Meridian122. Wants to get rid of my high school ex-boyfriend's wisdom tooth. Given to me as a sincere present because he only had four and wanted me to have a part of himself. I love Man, that. <laughs> that I, can, I mean, that's one of those gifts that I, I can see that the person who gave it, it really meant a lot to them and they were trying to be really sincere. Mm-hmm. And I can also see being the recipient of that gift and being deeply weirded out. It depends on how goth they were. You know, like how goth was this high school relationship? Were we going full on cure? Because then, you know, that's just like a typical Valentine's Day present. That's the dozen roses. Right. In goth, in goth culture, one of your wisdom teeth, particularly when you don't have many, that's the, that's the ultimate way to say, I love you. Let's actually get our first guest over here to the house party. Uh, Speaking of getting rid of things, he actually knows all about that, or at least he knows about trying to get rid of things. He actually wrote a book length breakup poem called Junk. (laughs) Uh, And it's the third of uh, these books that he's been writing. They've been called Contemporary Epics of Rare Brilliance. And he shared some of that brilliance, Elena, with us back when we recorded this chat in 2018 at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. This is Tommy Pico. Take a listen. Welcome to the show, Tommy. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, this book, Junk, is the third in a, a series where you write about Tebes. Can you talk about the character of Tebes a little bit? Yeah, so Tebes is my alter ego. He's the version of me that is always at a 10. The loudest, the sexiest, the, the most pissed off, you know. Um, it doesn't take Tebes much to get... Uh, uh, motivated for any type of action, right? I'm, I'm just way more buttoned up than that. I'm actually kind of a prude. Like, Tebes is promiscuous. <laughs> but the thing is, like, the reason why I felt like I needed to create a persona was because I needed a way to detach myself from the work that I was making because if I thought it was about me, I would get too precious or I would get too um, self-censoring so, so that, like, I, I came off looking in a really good light. Whereas, like, Tebes is allowed to be dumb, you know? Tebes is allowed to make mistakes and to, to not have the right answers, and I don't feel self-conscious about that. Do you ever find yourself in real life being like, hold on, Tommy, you're in Tebes town right now? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I, usually that's... Was that him right there? Yeah. <laughs> Was that Tebes right there? <laughs> but, but the, the spirit of Tebes leaps out of me every now and then. Um, a lot of times on dates, sometimes special times... Uh, um, so this character, Tebes, uh, I understand you were writing about him in zines when you were a kid. What were you doing creatively when you were, uh, you know, in your teen years? Um, my first sort of zine collective was when I was in fifth grade. It was called Tommy Gun Comics. And I would get my cousins and my friends to draw comic strips for me. I would Xerox them and I would sell them at recess for a dollar each. <laughs> um, I was a little entrepreneurial back in the day. Uh, it's continued, a streak that's continued. And then um, in my teenage years, I would make zines, like sell them, you know, um, outside of punk shows so I could have enough money to go to the punk shows. And then later on, when I was like maybe 26 in Brooklyn, I started an arts collective called the Birdsong Collective. 
and we were poets and 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 nonfiction writers and um, essayists and 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 short story writers and artists. And they would each give me something, and every two months I would have a release party. And after five years, we had like 20 issues and a nice little spot in like the Brooklyn arts scene. <laughs> um, you wrote a book, another book that featured Tebes called Nature Poem, and I think the one of the things brought up in it is fascinating because as a, as a Native American and indigenous person, uh, there's this assumption that you have this love affair with the wind and mm-hmm. nature and that you just want to write about it. But you've, you write that that's not something that has always come super easy to you. Yes. I mean, essentially, I guess I had to interrogate this idea of like, what is my standing with nature, right? Because there's like, it's not that I don't, mess with nature. That's what I realized. It's not that I hate nature, although I kind of do hate nature. I mean, <laughs> I live in the busiest cities in America. Like, I'm not trying to be outside and go hiking and all that stuff. No offense, Portland. Yeah, you're, uh, <laughs> careful. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's just me. I'm not, I'm not prescriptive about my lifestyle. You can do what you want, and I can do what I want, and everything's cool. Um, but there's this whole sort of Western, heteropatriarchical, white supremacist thing that tells me my relationship to nature, right? And I was trying to get You have to paint with all the colors of the wind. And Exactly. I can accept nature, but it's going to be on my terms. Yeah. You know, it's, I can accept certain forms of identity. I can accept uh, leather and feathers and beads and all these things, but it's going to be on my terms, not terms that were made without me in mind. This is the Livewire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are playing a conversation with the poet Tommy Pico talking about his book, Junk. Uh, we got to take a very quick break, but don't go anywhere because we will be right back with more with Tommy Pico. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to the Livewire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, Let's get back to our conversation with the poet Tommy Pico. We recorded this back in 2018 at the Alberta Rose Theater. Uh, We were talking about his poetry collection, which is titled Junk. Take a listen to this. Um, What do you mean by junk? Junk at its core is trying to get at this idea of whether or not you can exist without having to be a function of something right? That you have to have a usefulness. What if you could just be and live? Do you always have to be on your grind? Like, do you always have to be like somebody else's lover? Or do you always have to like, what happens when you strip away these types of identities, right? A boyfriend, uh, a homeowner, uh, whatever. And like, 
what, what is underneath all of that? Did you go through a breakup that caused you to actually have to do this examination on yourself? Absolutely. Well, it was a weird thing. I call it a breakup poem in couplets, but it was like a breakup poem, getting fired, and then being told I had to leave my apartment. Yeah, so it was like, it was an avalanche of stuff that really got me in that existential space where of like, I had no tether. So it's like, what am I? It was, it was, it's a poem of stasis. And maybe being like, is there something beautiful about the stasis? Is there something beautiful about not feeling any limits, right? Because a lot of times we use those markers of identity to kind of moor us. Yeah. But then unmoored could also mean free. How do you describe your uh, uh, style of, of writing? I read Nature Poem and I read Junk, and it was fascinating. I never really seen anything like it, actually. Um, well, I love book-length poems. They're my favorite thing ever. I love the fact that there is a whole, that there's an experience that you can have over the course of a book that's not unlike the experience you can have over the course of a film, but it is also challenging because it's lyric and it's not always narrative and there aren't always characters and there's not a plot. And so then it's like, well, what do you, what meaning do you accrue from that? I'm fascinated by that. And also... Like, a lot of people like to bring up people like Ann Carson or, or Claudia Rankin or um, A.R. Ammons as reference points for me. But honestly, there's a tradition in my tribe older than that. It's called Ishakapa. They're the bird songs. It's my namesake. It's what I was named after. And there are these epic song cycles, and they're kind of travelogues, and they talk about how um, the Kumeyaay people kind of migrated into the ancestral homelands. And so my... Ishakapas, my my new bird songs are how I left that homeland and where I'm going now. Uh, can you read something from Nature Poem for us? Sure. All right, this is Tommy Pico reading from Nature Poem. From Nature Poem. I can't write a nature poem because that conversation happens in the Hall of South American Peoples in the American Museum of Natural History between two white ladies in buttery shawls as they pass a display case of traditional garb from one tribe or another. It doesn't really matter to anyone. And that word natural in natural history hangs. Also history. Also peoples. Hangs as in frames. It's horrible how their culture was destroyed, as if in some reckless storm. But thank God we were able to save some of these artifacts. History is so important. Will you look at this metalwork? I could cry. Look. I'm sure you really do just want to wear those Dreamcatcher earrings. They're beautiful. I'm sure you don't mean any harm. I'm sure you don't really think about us at all. I'm sure you don't understand the concept of off limits. But what if by not wearing a headdress in your music video or changing your mascot and perhaps adding 0.05% of personal annoyance to your life for the 20 minutes that annoyance exists, the 103 young people who tried to kill themselves on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation over the past four months wanted to live like 50% more. I don't wanna be seen, generally, I'm a natural introvert, and I def don't want to be seen by white ladies in buttery shawls, but I will literally die if I don't scream. Tommy Pico. Thanks. That was Tommy Pico, recorded back in 2018. This is Livewire Radio, the Livewire house party, being recorded 
in 2020. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, Tommy was talking about his book, Junk. He actually followed that up with another book-length poem called Feed that came out last year. And also, Elena, Tommy is now writing on this FX show, which is going to be coming out soon, called Reservation Dogs, which is actually being directed by Taika Waititi, (gasps) who is, like, the best. He did Thor Ragnarok. He um, uh, did What We Do in the Shadows and Hunt for the Wilder People and a whole bunch of cool things. So definitely keep your eyes peeled for Reservation Dogs, uh, which will be out pretty soon on FX. All right. Uh, this week on the show, we are talking about letting go of things. Um, so let's let go of some stress. Elena, what do you say? You let go of some leaf blower-related stress? I need it. Bring it on. let go of the stress around what's going to happen when I bring this rental car back to the <laughs> rental car place covered in cherry-flavored fake blood. Um, okay, we're going to do that by listening to some stand-up comedy from Emily Heller, who's appeared on Comedy Central as well as uh, on Conan. She was one of the writers on a show that I was so into on HBO. It's called Barry. Uh, It's where Bill Hader plays a hitman who finds that his true passion is performing community theater. Mm. Uh, It's so good. Also, she's got a Comedy Central special out called Ice Thickeners. Uh, Let's take a listen to Emily Heller recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater back in 2018. It's so great to be here with you guys in the end times. How's everyone hanging in? In a true sign of the apocalypse, I joined a gym this year. Um, I joined for what I think is a pretty unusual reason. I joined because at the age of 32, I was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. Maybe soon I'll get my braces off, get my period, who knows? But I've been reading more about it, you know, in um, short spurts. And it it turns out that one of the things that's supposed to really help with ADHD is regular exercise, which was devastating news. Um, So I joined a gym. My gym membership came with a free personal training session. And I was like, oh, well, that sounds like that sucks. but it was free. So I went and I said, listen, here's what we're gonna do. You're gonna show me how to use these machines without bonking my head, and then you and I are gonna part ways for the rest of our lives. (laughs) And he said, I totally get it, but first we do need to do a questionnaire about your fitness goals. And I was like, oh, I feel like it should be clear from that last thing I said (laughs) that I do not have fitness goals. My fitness goal was to join a gym, and I did that already, so I kind of feel like taking the rest of the year off, if I'm being honest. And he was like, it's not that big a deal. I just want you to tell me what it is you're hoping to get out of this. And I was like, okay, I guess I would like to improve my posture, my stamina, my general energy level. And he goes, okay, great, and your goal weight? And I was like, oh, uh, not applicable. Uh, And he was like, you don't want to lose weight? And I was like, no, I do not. And he got this look on his face that told me that what he was thinking was, but I can see you. Um, (laughs) 
But here's the thing, I wasn't joking, and it's nothing against any of you if you want to lose weight. There's nothing wrong with that. I think I used to want to do that when I was younger, and then what happened was I gained 40 pounds, and then I started making a lot of money and having a lot of sex. And I'm not saying the weight is why that happened. I'm just saying I don't want to jinx it. So I don't want to lose weight. And he goes, let me put it this way. If you lost weight, would that be okay with you? And at that point, it was clear to me that he was not going to let me leave there until I admitted to him that I was Slimer from the Ghostbusters. So I decided to throw him a bone. I was like, I'll give you this. Ever since I put on weight, I've got a little bit more meat in my neck. It's made breathing a little bit harder than it used to be from certain positions when I'm lying down on the couch. I guess if that improved, I'd be fine with it. And oh my God, you guys, he looked so relieved. He was just like, okay, so we want to lose some weight. And he wrote it down and the quiz was over. Isn't that crazy? I'm still so mad about it. I'm, I'm mad at me, right? Because I missed an opportunity to just walk in there and be like, oh yeah, my goal weight. I guess like this plus 500, um, I want to gain 500 pounds, but I only want to gain it from the waist up. Is that possible? I want to be a perfect circle, no neck anymore, neck gone, same size legs. Is that, basically I want to look like the sexy green M&M. Can you make that happen for me? It's been, a, it's been a big year. Um, I got married recently. Uh, hold your applause. I didn't want to. Uh, it was for health insurance. Um, I didn't even post about it on Instagram, so I'm not sure it's legally binding. Um, I, met, I met my husband online. It's where I do all my shopping. I have Amazon Prime, too, so it was like two days so fast. I'm just kidding. It took forever, and I met a million monsters. It was the worst. It was like trying to beat Super Mario. It was just like monster after monster, just like turtle, mushroom, lizard, just like over and over and over again until I eventually found the princess. The weirdest reaction I think I get is like when I introduce my husband to one of my friends, and they find out that we met online. They're like, you met him online? But he, he's so normal and nice. You won the lottery. I'm always like, how dare you? I did online dating for years before I met my husband. Winning the lottery takes one day, no skill. That analogy does not properly honor my resilience. <laughs> Do you have any idea how many men's opinions I had to listen to before I met him? How many conversations I had about Quentin Tarantino. It was just the one conversation, but I had it a hundred times. And guess what? It ended the same way every time with me saying, yeah, I haven't seen that one either. And that's once you get to the date before the date, there's the profiles and the messages. When you're a straight woman online dating, you just have to read a bunch of personal essays by unaccomplished men. It's the worst book club you've ever joined. So no, I didn't win the lottery. That doesn't describe my experience. What happened was I ate at a restaurant that gave me food poisoning 
every day for years. And then one day, I tried the pasta, and it was fine. I was just like, oh, I I guess this is what I'm ordering now. Uh, Yeah, I might get bored of this eventually, but I cannot risk it on another menu item at this point in my life. Thank you guys so much. That was Emily Heller, (laughs) recorded back in 2018 at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. Um, This is the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarello. As we do each week, we like to ask uh, the listeners a question. Uh, This week, we asked the listeners, uh, tell us something you need to get rid of. And folks have been sending in their responses to that. Elena has been uh, collecting those up. What are the listeners saying they want to get rid of, Elena? This one is from Susie. Susie needs to get rid of the bag of donation clothes that's been sitting in my car for the past few months. (laughs) (laughs) I have so many bags like that. I'll also mention, if you are going to take some bags of stuff to a worthy charity where they have the drop-off, block out the better part of an afternoon. Because the line is long. One, there are more safety protocols, as there should be. But I think a lot of people are just like working from home, Mm -hmm. and they've just realized that their home was a little more cluttered than they wanted it to be. Yep. So there there are just a lot of people donating a lot of stuff right now, just a heads up. And so that means also, if you want to score some sweet deals, head on oh, down yeah. to your closest Goodwill, because it sounds like there's going to be some good stuff in there. <laughs> um, what else are the listeners saying they got to get rid of? Well, here is a funny one from Kathy. Kathy would like to get rid of my daughter. I <sighs> love her, but she needs to move out. <laughs> so I think <laughs> I think the rid is not an existential ridding. I think maybe mm-hmm. just the... Uh, the uh, close quarters are getting to Kathy. That's tough because Kathy's daughter is three. That just, <laughs> that just seems young. If you could move back in with your parents for the rest of quarantine, would you do it? Absolutely not under any circumstances. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm one of seven kids. Oh, right. Our, we lived in this teeny tiny rental. There was absolutely no issue with the Burbank children staying home longer than was comfortable for everyone. It was like your 18th birthday. You were like, hey, thanks. Ah. <laughs> we were out of there. Uh, what else What else are the listeners trying to get rid of? Here's one from Chris. Chris needs to get rid of the humidifier that we brought with us when we moved to Portland, Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the weather patterns here in Portland are taking care of that all on their own, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Elena, for uh, collecting up those responses. Uh, Also, thanks to everybody who sent their answers in. Uh, We are going to reveal next week's question at the end of the show. So stay tuned for that. This is Livewire Radio. Uh, This week on the show, we are talking about getting rid of things. Um, But what about letting go of basically everything that you were raised to believe? Um, That is exactly what a guy named Derek Black did when he decided to turn his back on the white nationalist movement. Uh, It was a movement that his father had helped create here in the United States. Uh, And Derek's journey of of letting go of this part of his life was detailed in a series of articles that the Washington Post reporter Eli Saslow, who is a Pulitzer Prize winner, by the way, uh, he wrote about Derek Black. And then he turned that into a book. The book is titled Rising Out of Hatred. And we had Eli on the show to talk about this back in 2018 at the Alberta Rose Theater. Check this out. 
Eli, welcome to LiveWire. Thanks. Great to be here. Um, how did you first meet this guy, Derek Black? So I was writing about Dylan Roof for the Washington Post, and Dylan Roof had committed the hate crime murder of about a dozen people at a historically black church in Charleston, South Carolina. And Dylan Roof had spent time on this website called Stormfront, um, which I'd heard of, but I didn't know very much about. So in trying to understand the things that Dylan Roof had been reading to sort of motivate him before this massacre, I went on Stormfront and started reading this site. It's the, the largest racist website in the world and has been for two decades running. And the biggest threat on this website, there were plenty of people saying you know, horribly celebratory things about Dylan Roof, but the biggest thread was about somebody named Derek Black. And so I clicked on it and started to read and learned pretty quickly that Derek Black was the rising heir to not only this website, but also to this movement in the United States. He was the son of the founder of this message board, the godson of David Duke. He'd been raised... And David to, Duke, for those of you who fortunately don't know who that is... Yeah, you're lucky. He's a former Grand Wizard of the KKK. Yeah, exactly. And he had sort of made this guy, Derek Black, his protege. And Derek, being really smart and ambitious, had been disastrously successful in mainstreaming a lot of these terrible ideas. He'd been elected to office by the time he was 20 years old. He had a daily... Elected to what kind of office? To a Republican committee seat. Um, in Florida. In Florida, yep. Uh, in West Palm Beach, Florida, which is a pretty diverse place. Let he, me ask you a little bit about this sort of Stormfront thing and how it related to this movement between what a lot of people would call white supremacy or the idea of being a white supremacist and something called white nationalism. Because I would think those are the same thing, but actually Derek Black's dad was a big part of trying to move from white supremacy to white nationalism. What's the difference? Sure. Uh, they've worked really hard to change the language of this movement to try to sanitize it from a history of bloodshed. But I think... The true distinction that is helpful between white supremacy and white nationalism is white supremacy, unfortunately, is endemic to what the United States has been historically and is today. Um, we're all still living in a country that was built, unfortunately, on a lot of white supremacist ideals. White nationalists, I think, properly identifies a smaller group of people who are trying to separate races onto different continents as their end goal. But like the idea, too, was that this guy, Derek Black, his father, founded this website and was trying to make kind of an intellectual argument, like be the sort of thinking person's racist. Yeah, I mean, Derek's father had also been the head of the Klan for a decade in the United States um, and eventually decided it was more effective to build a gigantic website and eventually to ban all slurs from that website. There's no Nazi insignia, no racial slurs. What they've tried to do is instead of speaking all the time horrible things about people of color and Jews, is instead they're trying to speak to, unfortunately, the fairly widespread and factually incorrect sense of grievance that exists in part of white America. This kid, Derek Black, is not just kind of a passive observer to this, like his dad is starting this website and he, he's going into forums on the internet and popularizing these buzzwords like white genocide and things like that. When did he actually start to realize that maybe this was not a good way to be living his life? Not until he went to college, um, because Derek, in many ways, had been indoctrinated with a lot of these ideas. Everybody who he lived with believed these things and had made it the cause for their lives. And they pulled Derek out of the public schools and kept him sort of in the confines of white nationalism. And that's where his childhood existed. He was the keynote speaker at all these white nationalist conferences from the time he was 10 years old. So only in the first time that he got out of that world and began bumping into the people who were often the victims of his prejudices, 
is, did any of his ideas begin to shift? And that was when he was 21 years old, went to the best college and the cheapest college in Florida, happened to be a super liberal place, which Derek didn't quite realize until he got there. Um, And uh, pretty quickly on campus, realized that if people knew who he was, he would be ostracized uh, and, and shamed pretty quickly. So for the first year on campus, he led this secret life where he would leave the dorms every morning, leave all of his friends, and go out to a quiet place on campus and have a two-hour radio show with his father, railing against like the multicultural takeover of America. And then he would go back onto this diverse campus and befriend whoever walked by. And, and that lasted for a full year. Uh, we're talking to Eli Saslow. He is a writer at the Washington Post. He has a new book out called Rising Out of Hatred about Derek Black, uh, one time kind of you know, heir apparent to the white nationalist uh, movement who, who changed his mind at some point. Uh, I find the story of him getting to college uh, that you write about really fascinating because one part of the campus is trying to, when they figure out that he's this guy, they're trying to get him kicked out of the campus and out of the school because they feel like he's propagating hate speech. Right. And then there are a couple of other kids who like invite him to Shabbat dinner. Yeah. I mean, I I think, you know, one of the great lessons for me in reporting this book is that there are a lot of different ways to effectively impact people's thinking and to confront these really problematic, disastrous ideas. You know, and on this new college campus, students took vastly different approaches, but the thing that they all did is they invested themselves. They decided there was a huge problem and they were going to do something about it. So for some students, that meant shutting down the school, shaming Derek every time they saw him, flipping him off, telling him to get the hell off campus. Um, It was hugely effective. Derek moved far away from campus. He was really isolated. He was sort of confronted for the first time with the true horror of a lot of the things that he believed in the eyes of his peers. And then when these two Jewish classmates and a group that then widened invited him over, he was much more likely to say yes because he had nobody to hang out with. So he accepted this invitation. And then I think the persistent courage of many of these people to not just invite him over once, but to invite him over week after week after week, sometimes with no sense that really they were making an impact on him. And many of these students were, were again, the victims of these terrible things that Derek had said. And they printed out the awful things that he'd said about Jews or immigrants and posted them on the wall of their dorm room to remind themselves of how horrible these ideas were. And yet they kept inviting him back. And eventually that was partially a, a big part of his transformation. When did that change really start to manifest in Derek Black? I think it, it manifested slowly where like pieces of the things that he believed in would slip away. Other students on campus also armored themselves with the facts about you know, racial science and crime statistics, all, these, all this false science that white nationalists try to build their ideology around, and they would argue Derek on the facts. And he was you know, smart enough to look at these studies and see that actually they were right. So various parts of his ideas started falling away. But the thing that was holding him in place is that he knew eventually if he disavowed this ideology, he was going to lose his family, every piece of his identity, every connection he had to the first 23 years in his life, and he did. I mean, after very publicly disavowing it, he changed his name, moved across the country, and tried to disappear, in part for his safety, because the Stormfront community is not a great community to have angry at you. Neo-Nazis, skinheads uh, who think that you're a huge traitor. And, you know, I, I think Derek also hoped for a while that all of this awfulness that he'd spread into the world, he sort of naively thought, maybe it will stay there. Maybe like I can just go on and live a life and be a good person and all of this stuff will disappear. And in this case, 
you know, often as a reporter, I'm, I'm sort of in the process of trying to convince people to talk to me. Over time for Derek, the thing that I think compelled him was what was happening in the country. I mean, he saw all of these talking points that he had popularized spreading into the presidential campaign in 2016. You know, it was, it was David Duke and Don Black who first, with the KKK, came up with the idea of building a wall on the, on the southern border and took the national media there to drive around saying that immigration was, was changing the country and, you know, sort of playing to the sense of ownership, this false sense of ownership that exists in these parts of white America. When you read the book, it just feels like you're in the heads of these individuals. What, what do you have to do as a reporter to get to a place where you can write this as almost like an omniscient narrative who can get into the heads and the hearts of these people? That's really uh, nice of you to say. I mean, part of it is spending a ton of time with the people that you're writing about and building trust slowly. So with Derek, the first time I met him, uh, we met in a random city that I thought was his hometown, but in fact, he had had me come to a random place in case he wanted to then disappear again. You know, he talked about people in his life in, in sort of code names, uh, but trip after trip, building up trust, showing that I was genuinely interested, that I was invested in getting it right. And trust builds pretty quickly. You know, I think my job as a reporter is often to build a relationship with people that establishes some trust and to, uh, to listen and to show up again and again and to be genuine in the fact that I really care about what they're saying. You know, the other thing that helped a lot in this case is the book is based on essentially all these original documents um, where I didn't have to ask people what they were thinking at the time. I had the archives of what they were thinking at the time because Derek and his father were on the radio every day. There was Stormfront, this huge archived message board. You know, and then luckily for me, a lot of the people in the book are millennials who document their lives relentlessly. So if I was like, hey, what was happening on this random Thursday in 2013, they would send me like 200 G-chats from that day. Wow. So, uh, so the dialogue in the book could be organic dialogue rather than me trying to recreate it and guess at what changed his mind. We're talking to Eli Saslow. His book is Rising Out of Hatred. It's about uh, Derek Black, who, uh, who dropped out of the white nationalist movement. Uh, he's a Pulitzer Prize winner, Eli is. Um, what, in, in the time you spent looking into this movement, uh, what do you think the sort of current state of it is? I think a lot of us assumed that white supremacy and white nationalism and things like that were going the way of the dodo bird, and then suddenly someone gets elected espousing a lot of the talking points, and it's really upsetting, and it makes me wonder, are they getting sort of stronger and bigger and more influential? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they are. Um, and I think, honestly, part of the problem sometimes in America is that we have, we have sort of convinced ourselves that things like white supremacy are, are going away, when in fact they're not. Um, and, and I think sometimes in America we tell ourselves a story of, like, we are a great meritocracy and everybody has the same shot, which just the statistics and the facts don't bear out. What, I mean, what are the rest of us, the non-sympathizers with that way of life, other than inviting whatever white nationalists we meet over for Shabbat, <laughs> like what, what can people do? Because it's a really scary thing to hear about. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I would say the lesson for me in this was that you should confront it in whatever way is comfortable to you. So for some people on this new college campus, that meant organizing protests and, and you know, forcefully in terms of civil resistance, showing that this is not okay. And for other people, it meant debating in a more academic way on the stats. But I think we'd be lying to ourselves if we said that we don't all have the opportunity 
in some way in our own lives to confront some of these really problematic ideas. I know that I do. I mean, just in the people that are in my extended family. And, um, you know, the problem... Thanksgiving that, is coming, right, everybody. Exactly. <laughs> you know, the, the, the true problem with these white nationalist ideas is that it would be comforting to think that it's a small number of fringe extremists uh, who, who are espousing some outside ideology. The real problem is it's something that is much more widespread and pernicious and subtle that exists, I think, around many of us. So I'd say when you see it, it's an opportunity to do something about it. At Derek, at one point when we were talking about this book, said something that stayed with me where he said, you know, for him, the act of speaking up again and again uh, feels essential because in this moment, being silent feels like being complicit. And, and I think that that's an important thing to take away. Eli Saslow's new book is Rising Out of Hatred. Eli, thank you so much. That was Eli Saslow back in 2018, recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater. This is the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. By the way, an update on what Eli has been up to at the Washington Post. He has been writing this collection of accounts uh, from people who are sort of sharing their personal stories about COVID-19. And uh, Eli is just an amazing writer. That's how you win yeah. a Pulitzer Prize, it turns out. Yeah. Um, and so he's sort of turned his attention towards uh, our experience generally with the virus uh, through some specific stories. And so I definitely recommend checking those out. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, we have to take a very quick break, but don't go anywhere because in a moment we will have music from the Helio sequence. Stay with us. This is the Live Wire House Party. Hey, special thanks this episode to Colin Houghton and Marsha Truman of Portland, Oregon. Colin and Marsha are part of the Livewire member community and they generously support the show with a donation each month. And we really appreciate that support because it is genuinely how we are able to keep this whole thing going. So a big thanks to Colin and Marsha. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal T this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. And they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LiveWire, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to the Livewire House Party. I am your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. Our musical guests this hour are indie legends in Portland. Uh, and when you hear this performance, you're going to understand why. Uh, take a listen to this. It's the Helio Sequence uh, doing their song, Lately. We recorded this at the Alberta Rose Theater back in 2018.
That was the Helios sequence recorded back in 2018 at the Alberta Rose Theater. All right. Uh, before we get out of here this week, uh, how about a little preview of next week's show? Uh, this is very exciting, Elena. It's going to be generally around Halloween, right? And so we're going to provide a little ear candy for the Halloween season. You see what we did there? <laughs> we have a very appropriate guest to things that are underworldish and spooky. Mm. Uh, we're going to talk to Anais Mitchell. Anais Mitchell is a, a great singer-songwriter, uh, but she might be, at this point, most well-known for creating Town, the musical, which won so many Tonys. Um, she is going to stop by. She's going to talk about Town. She has a new book out where she kind of breaks down the lyrics to that musical, and she's going to perform a song for us. Also, we're going to be, of course, getting some answers to our listener question, which is where our social media manager, Ariana Donneville, comes in. Hey, Ariana. Hey, Luke. Uh, you're like very crafty. I know that you're always sewing things and making things. Do you get into Halloween? Do you do like an elaborate costume? Yes, of course. You have to. (laughs) (laughs) What are you you doing this year? This year I'm going to be an eighties workout dancer. Nice. And I, yep. And I'm dressing up my little dog, Kenzo. He's going to be a French man with a beret and a little baguette (laughs) toy. (laughs) Are you going to go full like braided headband? Like you have to have a headband, right? Is that a given if you're an eighties workout person? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) What is the question for the listeners uh, this, uh, this coming week? Yeah. The question is, what was your most memorable Halloween costume? Uh, you got something in Don't tell us yet, Elena, but do you have something in mind when you hear that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, it might be a little not safe for work. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, was, I only was allowed to dress up like one time when I was a kid and it didn't go well. So that's my most memorable costume. It was definitely safe for work when I was dressed up as. It's just, I was a very scared kid. Anyway, we'll talk about that next week. Uh, Ariana, if the listeners want to give us their responses to their most memorable Halloween costumes, how do they do that? Yeah, listeners can submit their answers on Twitter and Instagram at Livewire Radio as well as on Facebook. Okay, great. So everybody do that. Tell us about your most memorable Halloween costume. All right, that is going to do it for our show this week. A huge thanks to our guests, Tommy Pico, Emily Heller, Eli Saslow, and the Helio Sequence. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Amy McCormick is our development director. And Ariana Donneville is our marketing associate. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom and A. Walker Spring, who also composed our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixed this episode along with Corey Schreppel. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Zachary Simmons from Pittsburgh, PA. Aye, What's aye, up? Aye. Woohoo! Go Stellar! Steel City checking in. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, you can find out about all of that over at livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you so much for listening. And we will see you next week.
Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 